I realize that, uh, that summer has flown by much more quickly than I feel like it usually has, and that many of you are probably a little sad that it's over. So if that's you, just tune me out for the next minute or two, because I love fall. I love everything about fall. Everything. I love the change in weather, and I love fall clothes, and I love the colors of the leaves and the trees, and I love the smell of bonfires, and I love apple orchards and fall festivals and pumpkin spice everything. Fall is postseason baseball. I know we're three and a half games behind. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> fall is also the beginning of hockey season. You know how I feel about hockey season. There might be something I love about fall, but I couldn't think of anything. So if you think of something, you can let me know. The other reason that I love fall is because it seems to be, I think, much more of a reset button for people than uh, even the first of the year often is. The reality is that even if you are not in school, don't have kids in school, and don't really have anything to do with school, our lives somehow still tend to revolve around the school year. So even if we didn't go out and buy new fall clothes and a bunch of new school supplies this year, most of us make new plans at this time of the year. A lot of people put September 1st as the start for a new goal. So maybe that goal is getting back to the gym, maybe it's getting more organized or finishing that project or whatever the case might be for you. But fall is the time where we go from kind of a less scheduled life to a life filled with routine, which for most of us, as much as we miss summer, that routine is usually a good and healthy and helpful thing. And so even as we are individually deciding who we are and what we want to be about this particular fall, we wanted to talk about that as a church as well. And so over the course of the summer, our executive committee spent some time having conversations about this. Who are we? How would we identify ourselves? If someone asked us what Hillcrest is all about, how would we answer them? And so the answers to those questions led us to this brand new fall sermon series I love my church. So 10 years ago or so, I was finishing my seminary degree, and as part of that degree, I was working at a, um, at a, as a chaplain at Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. Now, I'm sure that these types of things came out before then, but that was the first time I remember seeing something like that. So in the hospital gift store, there was this wall decoration that was in the shape of an oversized gift tag, and I loved it so much that I bought it, and I still have it in my living room today. And it says, in this home, please don't worry about the proper way of doing things. While we're together, your way is our way. If you want to laugh, laugh out loud. If you want to, be open, if you want to open up, your opinion is always welcome here. Feel free to be yourself because there's a place for you at our table. And it was the first time that I remember seeing this idea of kind of visually marking what you want your home to be about. Now, now you can walk into virtually any store anywhere and find wooden plaques all over the place that say things like, in this home we do second chances and we do laughter and things like that. They're great. But as I was thinking about that, I thought, what about in the church? What if we had a sign that said what we are about here at Hillcrest? And so this brand new six-week series is our way of answering that question for you and for those in your life who are curious about what this church is all about. And so our hope is that you will think about people in your own lives who do not yet have a church community and that maybe you would consider bringing them during this series. So maybe our church community doesn't end up being a good fit for them. That's okay. But maybe it will. 
Maybe it's exactly what your friend or neighbor or family member or coworker needs at exactly this time. And because you know I'm not so subtle, here's a not so subtle reminder. <laughs> There's a website called churchgrowth.org and they just posted their latest statistics on how people start attending church. Two people start attending, 2% of people start attending church because of advertising. 2%. 6% of people start attending church because they were invited by the pastor. 6% of people started attending church because of some kind of organized event that the church had. And 86% of people started attending a church because a friend invited them. Real subtle, I know. Just a reminder. We need those reminders every once in a while. And I get it. I get that church is an increasingly difficult sell in our culture, but here's the thing. You don't have to sell it. You just have to extend an invitation. Besides, as we will talk more today, it's not really the church that needs to be sold to people anyway. It's Jesus. So over these next six weeks, we're going to talk about the six main things that we think you will find here at Hillcrest. And we are starting our series this morning in the only place that we possibly can with the reality that in this church you will find that we are all about Jesus. It seems like it should be a given in a church, right? Aren't all churches all about Jesus? Well, you tell me, are all churches all about Jesus? No, unfortunately they're not. Now, I don't believe that it is ever, ever right or helpful for one church to spend their time bashing another church and that is for sure not something that we want to be about here at Hillcrest. But in order for you to understand why we are clarifying that we are all about Jesus here, we have to name the reality that some churches are not, that some churches have made their priority money, and that some churches have made their priority their pastor, that some churches have made their priority politics. Sadly, there are a lot of churches that have replaced Jesus as the foundation and as the center with something or someone else. And it's not that Hillcrest is perfect. We are far from it, and anyone here will tell you that. But even on the days that we get off track, whether individually or collectively, we will always come back to Jesus and that is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this one first. Because if you've been around here for a while, you have heard me say this a thousand times. If there are a hundred people in the room, or however many people are in the room today, not a hundred, but whatever, say there are a hundred people in the room, the only thing that we will all collectively have in common is Jesus. I know this church, and we do not agree on much else. I'm just being honest. <laughs> I hear conversations you don't all hear. We don't agree on certain aspects of theology. We don't agree on how the church should be decorated. We don't agree on whether or not there should be uh, pews or chairs in this room. We don't agree on the style of music that we would each prefer to sing on a Sunday morning. We for sure don't agree on politics. So you can just kind of throw a dart at any hot button topic in the world and you will find people here on all sides of the conversation. The problem is that that is where churches often get lost, that they follow one of those rabbit trails of disagreement and they make it their main priority instead of Jesus. They become known more for a particular issue than they are for their love of Jesus. We see it happening all over the place. 
If you want to go to a church where everyone agrees on everything, and there are churches like that, I'm telling you right now that this is not it. Now, the Evangelical Covenant Church to which we belong has a long history of creating space for people to wrestle with God's word, which we will talk about next week, and it has at least historically created space for people to disagree on many things, lots of things actually, but in order to create a church where there is freedom to disagree, we have to constantly keep the main thing the main thing. And in this church, the main thing has always been and will always be Jesus Christ. So then the question becomes, why have we put all our eggs in this basket? What made us decide that Jesus would be our main thing? Well, the short answer is that in this church, we believe that Jesus was who he says he was, and we believe that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. Now, granted, that is not a very personal answer to that question. My genuine hope is that if you walked up and asked somebody in this church why they have made Jesus the center of their lives, that they would offer you a much more personal response than that. Because the truth is that Jesus transforms lives. That most of us who believe in Jesus have had our lives transformed by him. And I know that that sounds like the churchiest thing in all the world to say, but even for the very best storytellers in our church, the story of how Jesus impacted and changed our lives is the very best story that we have to tell. Unfortunately, many of us get a little shy or a little weird about telling it. Some of us think that our story of transformation is too boring. I grew up in a Christian home, yada, yada, yada. While others maybe think that your encounter with Jesus feels too vulnerable. Lots of us, honestly, just haven't practiced it enough. And if you are here this morning and you are already a follower of Jesus, one of my challenges to us this week is to tell that story to someone. Now, maybe don't just walk up to a stranger because that's weird. <laughs> but if that's your thing and Jesus calls you to do that, then follow him. But for most of the rest of us, maybe think about the relationships that you are already in and the conversations that you are already having this week and be courageous in sharing your story about how Jesus impacted your life. Now, I realize also that for those who aren't quite so sure about Jesus, that there are all kinds of other religions out there, that there are all kinds of other theories on how the world came to be and all kinds of theories about who Jesus actually was as a person. And if you are somebody who has those kinds of questions, that's okay. Those are good and right questions to be asking. We are not going to address them all today, but I want to assure you that this is a safe space for you to ask them. I know that the people on either side of you might look like they have it all together, but none of us do. We are all here in very different places in our journey of faith, each working out our faith and trying to know God more deeply, and there's room for you to do that too. So whether you have been walking with Jesus or had a relationship with him for years and years, you're not quite sure what it means to have a relationship with Jesus or if you want one at all, there is a place for you here at Hillcrest. One of the things that we have been doing over the course of the summer, and we're actually still finishing it, is reading some C.S. Lewis books together. This last month, we read the book Mere Christianity. And in that book, Lewis kind of writes a back-and-forth defense of the Christian faith, and he brings up this idea, he doesn't use these exact words, but this idea that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. 
I thought that sentiment belonged to C.S. Lewis. Some of you thought that it belonged to Josh McDowell. It turns out that we were all wrong. That phrase is actually attributed to a Scottish preacher named John Duncan, who was born in 1796. And he formulated something that he called the Christian trilemma. Trilemma, right? Like dilemma, but three. Okay. He said, he said that Christ either one deceived mankind by conscious fraud, two, that he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, that he was divine. And Duncan says there is no getting out of this trilemma. Then in 1936, somebody named Watchman Nee made a similar agreement in his book, Normal Christian Faith, and he says, a person who claims to be God must belong to one of three categories. First, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a, a liar, deceiving others by his life. And third, if he is neither of those, he must be God. He says you can only choose one of those three possibilities. If you do not believe that he is God, you have to consider him a madman. If you can't take him for either of those two, you have to take him for a liar. He says there's no need for us to prove if Jesus of Nazareth is God or not. All we have to do is find out if he's a lunatic or a liar. If he's neither, he must be the son of God. So, as each individual comes to terms with the person of Jesus, you have to answer that question for yourself. Many have said that the historical Jesus has clearly been proven by believers and non-believers alike. So we have reasonable proof that Jesus as a person was very real. But of that proof, you may find people saying that he was nothing more than a very, very good teacher. But that is precisely what this trilemma disproves because just a good teacher isn't an option. And it's not an option because Jesus calls himself the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. So we could simply call him a liar and say that he was a good teacher. He just wasn't who he said he was. Maybe a really kind person, but a liar nonetheless. But really, in my opinion, the liar argument doesn't hold much water either. Because the claims that Jesus made about himself were ridiculous and extraordinary. And no rational person, liar or not, would make such an absurd claim about oneself. He can't just be a good teacher, and he can't really just be a liar, so he either is who he says he is, or he's a lunatic. Because who goes around making such claims and getting people to follow them We've seen that in other places, people who are not in their right mind, that's who. Now, forgive me, because I realize that lunatic is obviously not a word that we would ever use in regard to mental health in this day and age, but it is a sentiment from a couple of years ago, so please allow me some grace in using that phrase this morning. So who is he? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this conversation where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they respond, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. Others say that you are Elijah. Other people think that you are Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And then Jesus says, yeah, yeah, I get that. But who do you say that I am? And I can't help but wonder how that conversation would go today. 
If Jesus walked into a crowded restaurant and started asking people, who do you say that I am? And people would say, well, some people think that you were a really good teacher. Some people think that you're a lunatic. Some people think that you're the hope of the world. But really, most people just don't think about you at all. And I still think he would say something like, yeah, but who do you say that I am? So what about you? Who do you say that Jesus is? Lee Strobel, in his book, The Case for Christ, says we have to ask, why is there no other first-century Jew who has millions of followers today? Why isn't there a John the Baptist movement? Why, of all of the first-century figures, including the entire Roman Empire, is Jesus still worshipped today while all of the others have crumbled into the dust of history? And so I had to answer that question for myself, just as each of you do. And for me, I think the reason that Jesus, apart from all the other figures of that century or any century, is still worshipped by millions of people today is because I believe that Jesus is not a liar. And I believe that Jesus is not a lunatic. I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, and I believe with all that I am, in the words of Philippians 2, Philippians 2 that Lorna read for us earlier today, that in our relationships with each other, we should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And who was Christ Jesus? Well, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so if you're wondering what you're going to find if you hang around Hillcrest Covenant Church, you're going to find a group of people from all different backgrounds and all different life experiences who agree completely on nothing except for the fact that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. On earth and in heaven and under the earth. And that every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who believe that do so because we have experienced new life in Christ. When Jesus said that he would come back to seek and save the lost, or to come and seek and save the lost, we recognize that we have all been the lost. That we have each in our own way come to a place where we have realized that we are loved by God and that through Christ we have been saved by grace and by grace alone. And it is an ongoing transformation. God changed my life when I was first saved in high school, but he also transformed me so many times and in so many ways and continues to do so constantly. He continues to shape me into his likeness. And you know that I don't look very much like him a lot of days, but he keeps chasing me. And he keeps extending grace and he keeps offering me another chance on a brand new day. 
And so I want you to know that regardless of who you are, that same grace is offered to you. And I want you to know that Jesus hung out with people who didn't fit in, with people who didn't know the scriptures very well, with the people who are, were on the margins and fringes of culture, that his heart beats for the poor and the disenfranchised and the widows and the orphans and the fatherless and the broken. That he never told anyone that they had to act or behave a certain way before he would love them. That he just loved them. And then his love is what later would shape people into his likeness, not his law, his love. We are all about Jesus in this church because we are fully engaged participants in the world and we are aware of what is going on around us. We not only see but know firsthand the brokenness and pain of this world. We talked about that already this morning. At work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, for many of us, even in our own families, we see a world of people who are suffering and struggling, people who don't have a sense of purpose, people who devalue themselves or devalue other human beings, people who think that they have to maneuver through this life all by themselves. It's not that we in the church here are immune from the pain of this world just because of Jesus. We have people in our church who have experienced abuse and abandonment, people who have been through divorce and fractured families, people who have experienced debilitating sickness and very tragic death, people who struggle with mental illness, people who suffer from physical disabilities. It's not, it's not that those who are, who are all about Jesus are immune to struggle. It's that in the midst of struggle, we have the hope of Jesus Christ. We do not suffer, struggle, grieve, celebrate, or die as those without hope. And we don't want anybody else to either. We are all about Jesus here because he is the only way. He is the only way to truth and he is the only way to forgiveness and grace and mercy and he is the only way to life eternal and he is the only way to hope and he is the only way to God. And there is nothing, nothing that I want you to hear this morning or ever more than we want you to hear that you are holy and deeply loved by the God of the universe. We want you to hear that God is with you and that God is for you, that God made you and that God calls you by name, that his forgiveness and his new life are available to you this very moment and every moment, if only you'd ask. You were meant to live this life with value, with purpose, and with full knowledge that you are forgiven and free in Jesus Christ. I once heard a pastor say that if there was some kind of cosmic game of hide and seek with all of the major world religions, and you were the one hiding, that the God of Christianity would be the only one who would come looking for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for the love of God. In fact, you can't because it's given to you as a gift. No hoops to jump through, no levels of enlightenment to reach, no working your way to the top. Just a God who loves you so much that he came looking for you. He knows all your mistakes and he knows all your defense mechanisms and all of your fears. And he comes looking for you, not despite those things, but in the midst of them, that his love would transform your life. 
And so here at Hillcrest, you will find that we are all about Jesus because there is no other name by which we are saved, by which we are loved, by which we are free. Let's pray. And so God, I know that a lot of us here in church this morning have been in church for a very long time. Not everyone, but I know that a lot of us have. And so first I want to pray for those in the room who have been walking with you for a very long time, who have been coming to church for a very long time, but who are struggling this morning to dive into and experience the real transformation and freedom that you offer. We feel like we've said the right things in church that we keep showing up time and time again, but we keep messing up, God, and we feel far from you. And so I pray that for those people in the room this morning, that you would remind them that you are looking for them and that there's nothing that they have done or left undone that removes them from your presence. If only they would call upon you. And so God, would you speak to their hearts this morning? God, for those in the room who may not yet know you, who are questioning, who are wondering as they look around at the world, they're wondering if you are really loving and if you are really here. And I pray, God, that you would call them by name this morning, that you would speak your truth, that you would tell them by name that you died for them, that they would live, that they would have freedom forever. And so, God, we thank you for who you are, and we ask for your forgiveness as a church for those times that we have taken our eyes off of you. And we pray, Lord, as we go forward, that in this next season of life, we would chase after you with our whole hearts, that everything we do in this place would be about you, not about us, not about our priorities, but about you, Lord. That other people would experience you because of the way that we as a church are living our lives, Because, God, we do believe that one day every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will profess the name of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And so we give you thanks that you forgave us, that you saved us, that you have given us new life. May we be all about you. Amen.